Hello, thank you for joining us for our webinar today about how to unlock your beverage band's potential in distribution, financing, and also scaling your operations. This webinar is part of a series um, that we put on it here at Manufactured. We're, we're exploring different consumer categories. Um, we do this once a month and um, how, like, how brand operators, founders, and investors are navigating in, in today's climate. Uh, so for example, in August, we focus on beauty, personal care, September, food, CPG, October, apparel, and now of course, November, beverage, um, which I'm super excited about. Um, and we have, of course, incredible panelists here for us. Um, I'm your MC, uh, Mike. I'm the community manager here at Manufactured.com. Uh, before we get started, wanted to tell you a little bit about Manufactured. Manufactured is an end-to-end -end inventory solution that helps brands with inventory financing and or sourcing their production. Um, our goal is to reduce your COGS while also increasing your inventory amounts. So if you're a brand owner, we're going to do a quick poll, but um, if you're a brand owner that's um, looking for inventory financing um, that, you know, wants to serve a, that's looking to fulfill a PO or a, or, or grow on the e-commerce side. Um, and if you want to, uh, want to talk with us, um, please, please let us know in our uh, survey real, uh, real quick. Our panelists are extraordinary. Really excited for this. We got Trey Lockerbie, who is a CEO of Better Booch. Better Booch is a premium small craft kombucha that is brewed in Canon downtown Los Angeles. Um, I see it. I see you guys everywhere. Um, in all like, and whenever I go um, grocery shopping, um, uh, such a uh, really great, um, really love, love the product. Um, we have Emily Heinst, who is the CEO of Sachet. Um, Sachet is an alternative spirits shop and lounge featuring functional and alcohol-free alcohol beer, wine, spirits, and mixers. Um, they also as well have um, their own brand too, Sachet, um, which just launched in Target, which congratulations, that's amazing. Um, uh, and we have um, Elliot Cohen, who is Director of Finance at Ritual Zero Proof. Ritual is the world's best-selling and top-rated non-alcoholic spirits. It delivers flavor and aroma of tequila, whiskey, gin, rum, and, ap and aperitif. I'll be honest, I have not tried the product yet, but I'm looking looking forward to it. Um, uh, as someone who um, doesn't actually drink alcohol, I'm really looking forward to uh, to, to, to try Ritual. Um, and of course, we have Sally Jan, who is the director, head of ventures, North America at Diageo. Um, Diageo is a multinational alcoholic beverage company. Um, they're massive. Some of their brands include Guinness, Johnny Walker, uh, Bailey, Smirnoff. Um, and they operate from 132 sites from around the world. Um, and so um, incredible to have you here, Sally, um, and, um, and and all of you. So um, let's get to it. Let's, let's get this rolling. Um, we do want to make this, I do want to point out before we get started, we do want to make this as helpful as possible. So if you do, if you are a brand owner, if you are an investor or, you know, interested in this space, obviously I know you're here. So, so, so you might be one or the other, but if you do have questions for the panelists, please fill please let us know in the Q and a, if it has to deal with, of course, operations, scaling, um, or financing your brand. Um, we really want to make this as helpful as possible. So feel free to uh, share any questions that you have, and hopefully I'll be able to get to it. Um, so um, with all that being said, panelists, welcome. How are y'all doing? Great. Excited. Excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for taking the time. I I really, really do appreciate it. Uh, so I wanted to first start out. Um, this is a really interesting time, no matter which category you're in when it comes to capital markets. Um, it's, it's 
it's a tough time on both sides of the coin. It's tough to raise a round of equity. Um, and also on the debt side too, with, with debt being a lot more expensive than it was, let's say like 2021, 2020. So how are you all thinking about using debt versus equity when it comes to growing your brand today? Maybe Elliot, we'll, we'll start with you. Um, five years ago, when our founders, even during a much better time um, on the debt side, when our founders were... Um, kicking Ritual Zero Proof off the ground. Uh, they wrestled with the should they try to go debt or kind of a la carte equity. Um, instead, it, we, they decided to be best to partner with one of the best strategics in the world, which is Diageo and Distill Ventures, the um, kind of the brand booster of and venture capital arm of, Dis, of Diageo. So we are we're part of the portfolio and that was from day one. Um, so we did go the equity route and um, whether or not that has helped on the interest point side, you know, it, it's tough to tell, but has been immeasurably helpful on the strategic ideas on getting the equity at the times when we need it. Um, so, so I, you know, that's one of the toughest trade-offs for founders is try to keep as much equity as possible or give some away to the greatest partners possible. And we went the side of, okay, let's, uh, let's raise equity, but do so in a way that won't be a time drain on the founders so that there is more time to go out and run the business. So not to put not to put Sally you on the spot, um, or you know obviously um, this partnership between a Ritual and a Diageo, but was when you also had when you also raised equity from a, a strategic uh, partner like Diageo, was that also helpful in terms of getting uh, getting you all into retail and actually getting you all into stores too? Yes, uh, it, it's definitely helpful to say, hey, look, um, we're working with Diageo. They've uh, taste tested 50 different brands. They love the brand and our value proposition and our, our the way that we market ourselves. Uh, so that is part of the strategic help as well. Is it? Uh, it's not only capital, but it's also expansion and recognition. <laughs> I can no add problem. to that because um, you mentioned Diageo and then you mentioned Distill Ventures. So just uh, uh, give a little bit more color on what that is actually is um so Diageo, um, we have, um, a, a, there's an organization called Distill Ventures. It's independent of Diageo. There are 30, around a 30 person team globally. And Diageo is the sole investor into Distill Ventures. And they help us, you know, with end-to-end uh, -end help with our startups and our startup portfolio. And once we have invested in companies like Rachel, a lot of those uh, different members of the Distill Ventures team will get go into these different brands and help them hands-on on a day-to-day -day basis in all kinds of operational support functions, whether it's um, e-commerce, consumer insights, on sales and marketing, um, even with uh, you know, Elliot's in the finance function ritual. We have a portfolio finance director that also helps him. We have a supply chain team that gets in and helps these brands. So um, to to Elliot's point, it, you know, having strategic capital um, for us, we just, we use mostly equity and then we can help our companies also help them out with debt um, on a low interest basis because they're already part of our portfolio and we're really invested in them because we want to see their scalability and their growth. So we uh, are actually able to offer some of both, um, but mostly we're, we're, our interests are, are in the, on the equity side. No, that's really helpful. And thanks for giving some color, Sally, to, um, to, the, to, to how Diageo operates when it comes to working with emerging brands and as well as thinking about innovation. 
Um, that's that's really helpful. Um, Emily, how how do you think about this question in terms of like raising equity round for you know uh, Sachet the brand? Um, and what and also just overall how you think about equity versus debt when it comes to um growing. Yeah, I mean, given the challenging macro environment around fundraising, we've had to be very creative um, in order to scale. So if you would have asked me three years ago what our strategy was, my answer would be completely different than today. Um, also, Sachet is in a white space, right? The non-alcoholic beverage industry. And we are approaching things a little bit differently. So um, not being a straight CPG brand, not being a four-wall retailer, but really like pushing and challenging the idea of like what an integrated retail market strategy should be or for a brand, um, that is, is a challenge for most investors. Um, so we had to be creative about looking for um, financing and debt financing was the simplest option um, and the best option for us to take a business um, that's truly hockey sticking into the next year. That's great. And so why, why specifically like debt financing at this time instead of, instead of the equity side? I know that of course, it's obviously like a really tough time to raise an equity round, but why was like debt, debt, like the, the, like, like the, made sense for Sachet in terms of right now? It made sense for Sachet because we had commitments from a major retailer um, mm -hmm. that we needed to fulfill. So having paper um, definitely enabled us to take that path. Um, and we run a small business, very lean, like a very small team, um, light on capital. So going through a major equity raise, there just simply wasn't time um, to do both, like run my business and go through due diligence for the right partner. Yeah. That, that makes, that, that makes a, a lot of sense when you have like, like a major retailer, you know, knock on your door and, and wanting to PO and actually get you through the door, um, that, um, from a timing perspective, it makes sense why you, why, why that also makes sense. Um, Trey, how about, how about you all and, and better booch and like a little bit about like your, your story and arc, um, when, when did it make sense for you all? How how did you think about you know raising equity rounds versus on the debt side um, um, w w when it comes to growth? Right. So Ashley and I started the business with the idea of essentially becoming an alternative to the only player at the time, which was GTS, and we set out to build sort of like a family business at, at first. Um, we bootstrapped the business um, for about seven years and uh, didn't take any outside capital. But what we came to realize is that in this industry, there are these step functions <laughs> involved where, uh, especially when you're manufacturing yourself, which is something we do, um, you know, there are these moments in time, these forks in the road where you say, okay, are we really doing this or not? If we, if we are, then we need to kind of take a 10 X uh, leap here. And, you know, one example would be Walmart coming to you and saying, Hey, we want to, Put you in a thousand stores or whole foods wants to take you nationwide you know you get these step functions where you want to say yes to as much as it makes sense to uh and that requires capital so i think for us you know it came to the point where we said look we've done a little bit of both we've done both debt and equity um i thought emily put it really well i think debt makes sense where there's sort of a short-term end goal in mind 
Um, whereas equity is more of that venture, you know, uh, theme where it's more unknown, right? The value creation maybe is a longer, uh, timeline. So debt for us has made sense when we had some of those step functions, we needed that finance and inventory or take, you know, equipment financing and that kind of thing. And the venture side has been more on the brand building side, you know, the things that take a little bit more time, take a little bit more investment and, uh, to pan out. How also, um, no, that's, that, that's really well said. Um, Trey, how, um, why did you also chose to also self-manufacture? Well, for us, uh, it was a necessary evil in the beginning because kombucha, if it's done correctly, is a living product, right? It, it, it actually uh, is fermented. It takes tank time, um, has live cultures, all these things that co-packers don't want to deal with, right? They just want to blend and run. Um, and so for us, you know, in the beginning, it was a necessary evil. And over time, we saw it as a competitive advantage because a lot of uh, kombucha that's on the market, in fact, most of it is now blended concentrates. And we believe that the reason of the quality of our product stands out so much is because we're doing it the right way. We, we have that control. Got it. Yeah. I, that's, that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, uh, um, it, it, in terms of the control and maybe not being, not being able to obviously find, um, a manufacturing partner from that, um, um, that that's able to produce that, that type of quality since this, you are, you are dealing with a live organism. Um, Elliot, how, how about you in terms of, um, did it, um, and it, from, from a, did it make sense for you all to use like a co-manufacturer or, or to self-manufacture in, in, in kind of the world of, of non-alcoholics? Uh, we we started with a co-packer. Um, and even though, yes, it is because of the way we're made, it's, there's not many out there. It's tough to find a co-packer, let alone two, so that you have a, you know, some, a little bit of safety and redundancy. Um, but that was during the test phase. We needed to first prove to ourselves, prove to everyone, our investors that this is successful. So rather than spend all the capital building our own production lines or doing it in house in a small batch system, that would be really tough to scale up to, you know, okay, we're ready to roll out. Uh, we weren't yet ready to build our own production lines. That could be down the road. That's something that we're definitely, you know, one day would think of. But for now, it's been great working with a couple of co-packers. Was it tough to kind of convince co-packers since um, the world of like non-alcs, just the number of brands has kind of exploded the past few years. And mm -hmm. I I remember um, if I, if, if memory serves it correctly with um, Athletic Brewing, they, they were kind of forced to... Um, uh, build out their entire supply chain or or manufacture themselves because no co-packer would kind of take them. Why would you do you know non-alcoholics? But so I'm I'm wondering was it was it kind of tough to kind of convince co uh, co-packers that hey there actually is like a genuine market here? Uh, there, there's a little bit of a challenge, and what that led to was shared responsibility of purchasing special equipment parts, where we might help share the cost of. Um, a special part on the line. And then over time, that would be, um, you know, okay. it would be fully owned by the co-packer. Uh, but we also, we we had to have, whether not a full purchase order in place, but contracts in place with some big end retailers. And that was, that would give both us and the co-packer enough assurance that we would sell through. Got it. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Just having that, having that actually you own part of the, the equipment that, the machinery as well. Um, mm -hmm. um, and then, and then down the line, as you kind of, as, as you have proof of concept and, and as you, of course, kind of prove there's, there's demand, kind of like the, the manufacturer can, can own that. Um, Emily, how about, how about you in terms of how, how you thought about, um, on, on the manufacturing side, when you, when you launched 
Shishay the brand. Were you thinking about uh, working with a co-packer or were you also thinking about um, uh, you you actually doing it in-house yourself? Yeah, I mean, I founded Sashay as a multi-brand specialty retailer, but right. I took a page from Luxury Apparel, right? Like the best retailers have their own brand. Um, so knowing how you know much capital you need to build a brand, the physical store came first and our e-commerce, figuring out what customers right. like to drink in this category, um, the experience. Um, so br- building our own brand of product was secondary. But when I launched Sachet, I protected Sachet in multiple categories, including alcohol. So um, from where we sit, um, Sachet could globally expand not only as a retailer, but a private label brand in both non-alc and alcohol. Got it. Got it. Now that makes sense. And, and such an interesting kind of arc too, um, going, going from obviously retailer and you obviously have stores as well, um, of physical retail as well as obviously online. And then, and then now you've, now of course you have Shishay the brand, which is, um, super, super cool. Um, Sally, when you're investing, um, and, and, and you're looking at emerging brands, how do you think about like, how do you think about this question in terms of when it makes sense or, or, um, whether a brand should be vertically integrated or not. Like when I've had on, when I talked to some investors, investors kind of, sometimes they, they shy away from investors that are from, from brands that are, that are very, uh, CapEx heavy and, 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 um, and, you know, asset heavy versus they, they prefer brands that are kind of asset light, but how are how do you kind of think about this question when it comes to, um, on yeah. the supply chain side? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because we, are selling luxury alcohol brands. And that is the lens we come with, especially when we look at financials and the margin, like the margin profile, the unit economics, where things should be distributed, uh, whether they're distributed on premises, off premises, or even, you know, in like the non-alcohol space, uh, there's a lot of D2C and e-commerce happening. So for us, you know, we want to look for businesses that are creative, uh, accretive to the Diageo core business, which means adding, you know, thinking about them long term, adding them into our portfolio. Will they help improve our financials? Um, and so we look for businesses that have strong margin profile or the ability to scale up and grow their margins. Um, and so we're, you know, looking at brands like. Um, you know, in the whiskey category or the tequila category or the non-out category and evaluating all of the unit economics and scalability of these brands uh, where they are today and their potential in, you know, five to 10 years when we might be able to acquire them and bring them into our businesses. Um, obviously, there's more than just the the numbers there. There's um, you know, you're talking about co-packers, you're talking about the three PLs, the whole, the whole logistics, um, the whole end-to-end supply chain. And so we also um, dig into what the company's plans are, um, not just today, but what their plans are going forward as they think about, you know, we're forecasting, you know, from here to, you know, hunt, you know, maybe six figures of sales into millions of sales in the next 10 years, how are they actually going to handle that growth? Um, both just from a capacity standpoint, 
but also from how are they going to improve their margins with this type of growth too. When it comes to improving margins, does it, first of all, does a brand that you partner with, do they have to use maybe one of your manufacturing partners or, no. or, or kind of the Azure brand? Um, do they, do, do you also then, if they don't, do you have to think about, okay, if we were to acquire this brand down, down the line, um, can this seamlessly integrate with our manufacturing side and, and kind of how much we can bring down margins? Yeah. Yeah, we do. We take a look at that. Um, so, you know, with a venture game, it's a long game and we, we typically don't evaluate. Um, we don't, we, you know, we think about strategically where this company can go um, in the next 10 years at a very high level, but we do not plan the integration until closer to uh, sort of the exit option that we set out for each company. And so that's something we agree on with each company um, from the get-go, like where the exit could look like. And so once they're starting to get closer to that exit option, those triggers, those thresholds, then we start to have those conversations. Um, of course, we have some of our supply chain come in early um, just to t evaluate what's going on with the business to make as a part of our due diligence, but the integration piece doesn't really occur until if we're much closer to the actual exit. The actual, the actual um, uh, acquisition. That makes sense. Yeah, so it's not yeah. So much. So it's not so much thinking about okay, since of course it's not a requirement that a brand actually works with one of your manufacturers or or preferred manufacturers. That kind of yeah. comes down later I mean, in terms. I will. Of I will say that if we have. Um, you know, we have uh, introduced our companies to different resources of ours, whether it's like glass manufacturers, whether it's, um, you know, brand on the branding side. So we do make those introductions when we see that we have the expertise or we have the network for that. And, and you know, D it's Diageo's network as well as um, Distill Ventures Network that we're able to help our companies on multiple sets of um, things that they're seeing or we're facing. Cool, cool. That's really helpful. Um, let's let's talk about price and pricing and how you think about pricing for your products. Um, you know, I want to first maybe talk to you, Emily, first about this because you're in a very unique position. You just launched your brand into Target, which again, congratulations. That's such that, that's a really big deal. Uh, but also that, you know, you also have obviously Shashay started off as a retailer, which obviously still is a retailer, but you, you really kind of understand price because of course you're selling products of other um, uh, non-alcoholic brands, and that sort of thing. When, how are you approaching your price, your price when you, when you launch Shashay the brand um, and how also um, having a, that uh, Shashay the retailer, was that actually also helpful um, when, when it came to actually dictating what your prices should be? Yes. So I founded Sachet as a multi-brand specialty retailer and to take those learnings to build out our brand portfolio. Um, but as you know, as a multi-brand specialty retailer, the margins are lower. Um, so the idea of having a vertically integrated mix in our store was always there, right? Um, mm -hmm. But before we we launched Sachet, it was figuring out like where that should be, where should we start? So our project um, in, in mass retail is actually a mini multi-brand specialty retail assortment that includes Sachet 
the brand. Um, so the way that we looked at Sachet the brand, our own product, um, we had to find the right partners because we didn't start out as Sachet the CPG um, brand, right? Like we weren't, we weren't here to build a beverage brand from day one. Um, so it does challenge, you know, traditional models in CPG. Um, and it's like, a, it's a modern integrated retail strategy, um, which is where we believe we'll take, be able to take globally uh, and learn what customers like and build out our own portfolio. How how did you think though, in terms of like the price point um, when you're analyzing kind of other brands and as well as heading to Target, which is which is more on the on the kind of mass retailer side, not as much on the specialty retailer side. How did you think about where to actually price um, Shishay the brand um, that actually made sense that actually then could resonate with yeah with consumers? The question. So Shishay is a premium positioned brand. Mm -hmm. So in our store, we actually do not have price resistance. Um, because we have launched a store where you're getting higher level customer service, you're getting experience, awareness, there's a tasting salon where you can actually try products. Um, so we do increase our margin um, relative to the MSRP for most of the products on shelf. Um, that is in the physical store. As we expand our D2C presence, that may change. Um, and then with Sachet's product, um, since we're not manufacturing directly and we're using a partner, um, while the margins have increased and we're still positioning it at a premium price, um, you know, it, it, there, there are some um, concessions there, right? Because we're not manufacturing our own product. Got it. Got it. Does that answer um, your question? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and, and Target is a premium retailer. Like Sachet at Target is positioned as affordable joy, but also premium products. No, th no, that's, that, that, that's also helpful in terms, yeah. In, in terms of also where, where should say sees itself as well in, in target too. And that's also great that, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. Um, Elliot, how, how did you all kind of approach this too at, um, at ritual? Um, since I, uh, uh since I know that you're in multi-channels um, um, on the um, retail side of things, how do, how do you all kind of think about price? Uh, first, we have to have a, a hunch of who our customer is going to be. And also at the same time, we're not just comparing ourselves to non-elk and other non-elk um, brands, but also alcoholic brands and say, what value are we giving to consumers that, uh, you know, compared to what someone would get from the same thing that has foolproof alcohol in it. So we, you know, we have this hypothesis, we're a premium brand, but not super premium, not value. So premium brand. Um, we, we launched on DTC so we, we could um, start engaging and get some dialogue. We got, we understand through some consumer surveys, what the, you know, what the income might be. We do some price elasticity tests and we kind of get, get a quick gauge within our first six months of launching of, who is our core consumer? And we, you know, we have an idea of what their income is. Uh, but then looking at alcohol, you know, we're saying, well, we're giving the aroma, the taste, the burn, the, the ritual of drinking just without the alcohol. So, you know, should we be priced more because there aren't many options? Should we be priced a little less because you can't get the full buzz of alcohol? So we try to price ourselves maybe just at or just below parity of what our alcoholic counterpart would be. Mm. So that kind of affirmed our hypotheses. We see ourselves as a price leader and we're like, we're a premium brand. So $29.99 is kind of a rule of thumb SRP. 
whether we're going into retail or through our DTC channels. And we've kind of seen over time, a lot of our competitors, some have come down closer to that price, some have gone up closer to that price. Um, and it's uh, a lot a lot of data involved, but we've kind of started premium and have stayed in the premium lane. No, that's helpful. And also, um, uh, also appreciate you mentioning how you think about the relationship between where non-alcohol should be priced um, mm -hmm. compared to um, the the alcohol um, compared to um, uh, the alcohol equivalent. Um, uh, that makes a ton of sense. Um, Trey, how how about the role of kombucha? Um, how did you think about about pricing free wall? And were you able to bring down your prices slightly just because you're? I would imagine with with, with self manufacturing, maybe your margins are a little better than using a co-packer, but maybe I'm wrong there, but like, how did you think about, about pricing overall and, and, and how did it relate to, um, to your supply chain? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the challenge we've had is, you know, we've made the decision for environmental reasons and for product quality reasons, et cetera, to go into a can. Um, and I think only recently did, you know, premium products in cans become sort of adopted for a while, you know, cans sort of looked like a, a less premium option. So it was a bit of a challenge to approach the market with a can, but still being the highest quality premium kombucha on the market. So we've always been approaching it kind of like uh, going up against the incumbent in the space and pricing ourselves about 20 cents or so below that, because what we've seen is that the thing that drives the most trial is a, is the price, you know, it, it's, it's going on promotion and, and consumers do seem to be pretty, um, you know, uh, responsive to price. So we always like to be a little bit cheaper than the incumbent because we want to drive that trial because we find that the conversion rate is very high once people just taste the difference. And of, and of course there, of course, obviously then, then that, then that also leads to hopefully increased velocities, staying on shelf, and so it's almost just making sure you're kind of on on shelf and in and in the, the retailer's good graces that they want to kind of keep you having you back um, with that, rather than opposed to maybe all right, let's maybe price ourselves a little higher than the rest of the game, or, 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 a little um, higher higher than the rest of of, of your competition. Um, uh, Sally, how do you, when you're analyzing brands to work with and partner with, how do you think about um, pricing or pricing strategy um, uh, when you meet a, meet a brand? Yeah. With, um, I mentioned earlier how important margins are for us and that's, yeah, it is important, but I have seen um, some of our brands do some, you know, some clever things to boost their sales um, while adjusting pricing. So, I mean, I think um, like Ritual actually does a really good job of this and you have, they're using like some of these traditional D to C pricing models of um, to drive up the, the average um, order value. And maybe that's including things like um, subscriptions, right? Um, we've seen that on Amazon. You subscribe every three months, you get 5% off. Um, but over the lifetime uh, of the customer, you'll gain a lot more. And uh, and then they also have these bundling, bundling options, right? Where you are now getting upsold and buying more, but you're getting a discount. So that still boosts up the overall 
revenue volume for the business. And so, uh, you know, with, yeah, we don't like to see um, a ton of discounting, but we do like to see these clever ways of driving up the sales um, while also, you know, like, you know, um, you know, Trey said discounting or um, bringing liquid lips to get people to try in the initial product and then turn them into these repeat customers. And I think that is something the beverage world has taken from a playbook out of other D2C brands. Um, and, and so I think that's really effective. Yeah, that makes, that makes a ton of sense in terms of, um, online, how subscription, um, can really be obviously beneficial. Um, if, you know, if, if you do have subscribers and as well as kind of offering, um, mm-hmm. uh, different various promotions bundles, in order to yeah. get them. because bundles too, because of course, you know, selling beverage online beverages, it's, 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 um, it's a, it's a heavy product. It's liquid. It's, it's uh, very, very difficult to actually, um, fulfill, um, in terms of the, 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 the cost that you have to incur. So, mm-hmm. um, so bundling and kind of getting that, that, um, that average order value size up, um, is obviously key, um, or, or driving people from online into, into actually go into the retail store, um, as well and kind of see where they're actually located on their zip code and seeing which stores are actually their, their close suit, um, um, as well. Um, so actually yeah. getting the, the customer in there. And there's also also like a gamification sort of loyalty piece to it too, where um, you can lower the prices, but reward people and then help have that drive up customer lifetime value um, as well. Mm-hmm. Got it. That's great. That's a great point. Uh, we have a, we, we have a question here. We actually have a few questions here. Um, uh, first question uh, is about co-packers. Tisha uh, says she's having a hard um having a hard time finding um, a co-packer to work with or who can produce my product. Any advice? Maybe Emily, I'll, I'll start with you on this one in terms of how, how you thought about finding like the right co-packer for uh, Shishay. So um, we actually worked with a, a partner, an importer uh, okay. to bring in our, our own product. Um, and then we're developing our own formulations um, because of our relationships are, that are existing mm-hmm. uh, after three years in the non-alcoholic space. Um, so I'm probably not the best person to answer that question. So you already, you, you, you already had all the relations that, that makes I had the, of sense. Yeah. <laughs> I, I leverage relationships. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, our future products are being developed by people who came from non-alc, uh, and know, uh, where to get the product produced. How about, um, no, that, that got, got it, got it, got it. Um, Elliot, how about, how about you? Um, uh, uh, from like the early days of of ritual, um, how what, um, how were you able to find your uh, co-packer? If you have also any advice in terms of um how to find one um for any um entrepreneur that's that that's looking to start a, a, a beverage brand, yeah, it, it is it is difficult when you have a unique product to find a co-packer for a space that is emerging. So, yes, you could uh, leverage relationships, and and you bet that we we asked. Distill Ventures or Diageo of, do you know anyone? But then again, they're uh, Distill Ventures. Uh, they'd worked with 
one other uh, non-alcoholic company before, but it's not limitless experience yet in non-alcoholic. So we did conduct our own search. Um, we'll, we'll work with consulting firms. So for example, whole brain consulting, we'll go with them. We'll say, here's the bare minimum. Um, here's what we're looking for. Uh, the consulting firm might start the RFP process and, and gain feelers and interest from you know a, a final eight to 10 uh, options. But that's as far as the consulting firm could take it. Then we'll go in and start having one-on-one -on -one conversations with our huge list of, uh, can you manufacture this way? Do you have this type of certification? Can you be compliant? Um, and then mini test runs. But using an outside consulting firm who has a huge database of co-packers out there can be helpful. Yeah, that makes that's that, that that's a great point. And I think that Trey just shared um, shared possibly one um, in the. Um, answer. Yeah. We become a co-packer for others. So I, in a way I, I, I see it from that side of things. Um, I know that rodeo CPG has put together this list of 1.6 or like 1600, uh, 1.6 K commands and what their specialties are. And you just put your email in and you can get this list. So because someone's done the heavy lifting on this question, I just figured it was worth sharing <laughs> a link, uh, as a good starting resource. I appreciate that. Yeah. And also here, here at a uh, manufacturer, we also try to help brands to find the right uh, co-manufacturing partner too. So um, if that's of interest, happy to have a chat with you on that. Um, Sally, I'll, I'll, uh, it, do you have any thoughts too, in terms of how to find the right co-packer? Uh, I'm not going to be the uh, best to answer this because yeah. our co-packers are, are, are Diageo um, internal um, but we, I think it kind of goes to the integration question you asked earlier is we do help figure that out over time as a business's scale and they hit a, th a certain, um, threshold, then we start to think about how we can bring in, uh, our, our resources to the table and how they can in in incorporate better. Um, but we typically, you know, let the, leave the companies. Uh, uh, the startups to do their own um, co-packing until it makes sense, just because at the scale that they're at versus we're at, uh, it doesn't make sense to mix until a certain level. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, we have another question here from Ryan Lee. Um, I started a wine-based hard seltzer brand, drinklivy.com, that can ship to 40 plus states D to C. Would you focus first on Growing D to C to great to gain traction and leverage with, with distributors, or building the brand and sales by a wholesale in one state, city, region. Um, uh, this is a great question. Um, maybe Trey, we'll start with you on this. Yeah. Um, well, it's hard to say. I mean, my experience was that we started regionally and we went kind of mile deep inch wide. Um, I do love the idea of finding a way to scale through DTC where you can kind of control your own destiny a little bit more. Um, but there's pros and cons to both. I mean, one thing about starting small in a, in a certain region is you make sure you get product market fit and uh, you got to test those velocities and make sure it's, it's really sticking before you go invest a bunch, you know, nationwide. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say it, it's really kind of, discretionary i think yeah that's a fair that's a great great point i don't know emily if you have a yeah, any thoughts I, on this 
From my perspective, I would say start regionally. I agree with Trey, like build brand enthusiasts um, that are going to go out and start asking retailers, um, you know, and, and the brands that do well that are smaller in my store have done that. And it's uh, word of mouth, right? Um, before going straight to a distributor where you could get lost um, and lose a lot of money very quickly. That's really helpful. It's really helpful. Elliot, how about you? Yeah, regional, the help, the helpful part of regional in this space, because of laws dating back to prohibition, make it very hard to just, it's it's harder to scale nationally. It makes more, you're, you're almost stuck in a silo within certain states or regions. Um, so it does make sense to dominate a region, dominate a few states or a region of the United States. Now, if that catches the attention of a national retailer, then it's almost, okay, you have the big fish and you can go out and get enough distribution for that uh, national retailer. Uh, the other part of the question I thought I heard was BTC versus kind of wholesale in the store. And I think you could lead with either. Um, I'm sure Emily, is. it's been so helpful to be there in person and learn what's going on at the store level. Like it's so, you know, all, all the different senses and, and talking with people and that's helpful. And then eventually it's okay, well, we can also learn from DTC online. That's kind of how Ritual learned is what's going on um, with our online shopper. Uh, at one point, it, it will make you'll realize they kind of have to grow a little bit in tandem. If you only focus on one and not the other, then um, you might not have enough balance to the brand. Yeah, I think that's a great that. Yeah, I think that's that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think from somebody. So um, I, I obviously don't have a, a, a beverage brand. Um, I've talked to though a lot of beverage founders. Um, definitely um, from my conversations with them, it's. Um, they kind of have said multiple times over and over, go um, kind of a mile deep, inch wide, and kind of get those velocities up in in like if you're able to get into a couple of retail stores, really focus even on getting the velocities up before you expand to um, uh, to another, and making sure that you're staying insured and that you're kind of top of mind for that retailer and that and, and that buyer, and then expanding that way, um, um, as opposed to um, as opposed to uh, trying to maybe go on like a national scale or trying to get the attention from national retailer because that's very very hard to do um especially when you're when you're um, um when you're when you're when you're young um and so um and so I, anyway i i hope that's helpful just based on my uh, on my conversations that seems to be uh not there's one kind of um right way silver bullet to, to uh to building a brand but it seems like um uh, but from my conversations focusing on like one region um seems to be what uh, some of the brands I've talked to have been um, have become successful from. Um, I don't know, Sally, if, if 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 you have any thoughts on this as well. Um, I, yeah, I agree with um every, what everyone has said. Actually, I think that the kind of the what's important from that is um you know as a startup you need to be focused and you can't try to sell to everyone and everywhere all at once you have to focus on a few regions like what you know the others have said um and also you know i think a lot of brands did well during covid on d2c but from where we are today it's a bit different i think the the cac the customer acquisition costs for all of these online channels have grown exponentially so you have to evaluate for you like what's a better but what's a, a better roi if you have a really strong digital capabilities and team to help you with that i think 
you know, working on that. And, and from that, you can gloss a lot of really interesting consumer insights. Um, that could be interesting, but I, I do think the environment is very, very different now um, that you might need to figure out which is working, which are your best channels and best regions, and then just double down there. That's a great point um, about as well, the kind of shift from the DUC channel from what was what was happening during COVID and as well as, of course, like the iOS update and um, and um uh CACs becoming um pretty crazy um over the past couple of years um how are you all and kind of the shift towards wholesale um i've heard a lot of investors say too like what's your kind of wholesale strategy you got to go omni-channel um if you're a ddc brand um and then of course there's kind of like the question of like is ddc dead um per se which i do not believe ddc is dead but um how are you all in this climate thinking about the DDC channel overall? Cause it seems like if you're doing it, if you're, if from like a sales perspective, DDC will probably be always your minority channel um, when it comes to sales volume. Um, it probably will be retail. That's um, and, and wholesale. Um, that will probably be the majority of your revenues. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's also a way to obviously build the brand and, 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 and build and, and, and build your presence um, and build your presence from like a, a from a national scale. Um, so how are you all thinking about kind of D2C um, today and managing that channel overall and like, and the overall purpose of, of that channel? Maybe Trey, I'll start with you on this. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think D2C is dead. I don't think it's going anywhere. I mean, I think Bezos put it that way at some point in time saying, you know, that's one trend. I think that's pretty uh, s- secure as people are going to want more convenience over time. Um, right now you can get better boots, you know, to your door in New York for cheaper than some whole foods locations. So, you know, uh, it, it's, it's really interesting how it works. We, we, you know, de-emphasize investment in our D to C channel over the last probably 12, 18 months for all the reasons mentioned, uh, just a few minutes ago, the iOS update, the cat costs, et cetera. So we've just seen a organic steady growth, um, pretty, you know, nothing hockey stick, but just like a continuous, um, you know, a channel that's, I think over time going to be a great resource for us. I look at it more as a a brand building mechanism as well. We we do seasonal SKUs. uh, We do, you know, merch swag kind of items. Um, This week, uh, I can tease this a little bit, but we have a a really cool non-alc option we're doing for the holidays uh, that's launching tomorrow. And so, you know, we get to play around with new items and new products and because we manufacture ourselves, we can go to market pretty quickly with things like that and test it. Um, so I just see it as a vehicle for that, if nothing else. And hopefully over time, um, you know, right now it's probably we're like a 80, 20 D to C to, to retail. And to your point, I think that's probably how we'll continue to go. If I had to guess. It's helpful. That's great. Um, Emily, how about yourself? How are you thinking about D2C overall or, um, or, and also kind of balancing, um, as a retailer, um, um, the, uh, the online versus in-store? Yeah. Well, for beverage specifically, you mentioned this earlier, it's heavy, uh, it's hard to ship. It's expensive. It breaks. Um, so e-commerce for sachet has not been a priority, uh, for us. The way that I look at D2C is it's a channel. Um, it's not a business model. And I really believe in unified retail strategy, um, meaning that you're connecting with your customers in multiple ways. 
And I think it's been very clear uh, in the quote unquote previous D to C, and I'm not speaking specifically to beverage, but also apparel um, that have raised money on this idea that you don't need retail only to find out that that's actually the, the fastest path to consumer discovery, building brand enthusiasts that can then go and buy from you direct. Um, so that's how I think about it. I've been in retail though for 25 years. So um, I have a very specific point of view um, that may not uh, apply to, to every brand. Um, for me, it's been really interesting though to see that play out in real life, right? Um, I'm a multi-brand specialty retailer, but I also need a multi-brand specialty retailer to grow my business nationally and make sure that Sachet is in local neighborhoods. Um, and that's why I founded it, right? Like bringing in non-alcoholic options, um, making them more accessible uh, for celebration. So I don't know that answers your question, but I think it's 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 a complicated um, word to me. Uh, and I think it requires um, like a fresh look at how we connect to our consumer. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that, that's a great point. I mean, it can be obviously a, a, a great point for um, discovery um, as well for your product um, um, and as well as, you know, be able to um, create the uh, brand. But at the same time, as you point out, like, it's really hard to make beverage work online. It's 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 expensive. Shipping's um uh, shipping's tough. Um, it's just very very kind of expensive to do. Considering that at least you know one bottle, one can, it's not that much money overall, right? And so um so obviously you have you know bundling the initiatives and actually get get those a AOVs up. Uh, but um, you know, I mean, as one as one like investor um uh, that said on like uh, on another webinar. Um, not one of ours, but another webinar said that, you know, you, you, you kind of make your money when it comes to actually selling pallets, uh, rather than selling, you know, single, single orders, single packages. So, um, and of course that's, you know, uh, uh, pallets meaning, you know, wholesale retail and then single pallets kind of meaning, um, EV, e-commerce side. Um, Elliot, how do you think about the, the, the DDC channel today? Um, well, we were forced to become very savvy at DDC because our brand launched shortly before the pandemic, which meant like we had to prove ourselves in the middle of the pandemic, forced us to get smart. And But even that being said, with the internet privacy laws, yes, customer acquisition cost has crept up over the past couple of years, especially, but that makes it harder. But it doesn't mean that we want to give up, especially if e-com is a sizable portion of our business. Even if it's not half, it's it's sizable. Um, but just to show, you know, we've talked about kind of the whole the full circle, the omni-channel. Um, somebody was looking us up. We have a strong social media presence. So looked up our website. Our website is a store locator. Store locator drove to the nearest retail location, tried some of our recipes on our website, uh, loved it. Went to our website and just went to the general sales at ritualbeverage.com email. And it turns out that was a buyer for Celebrity Cruise Line. So that you know single DTC bottle you know led to a pallet. Um, so that's why it is important to keep up with both. They reinforce each other. No, that's um, and I I, I thanks for pointing out that kind of use case. How actually do you see led to you actually getting a um um a partner, uh, which is great, and actually um, uh, getting more um more sales. What what are some of the biggest challenges as as all your brands have been you know growing? What have been some of the biggest challenges you face when it comes to scaling up the production and, and on the distribution side? Um, maybe Trey, I'll start with you on this one. 
That's a big question. Uh, the, the biggest challenges. Um, I think, I think the biggest challenge has been introducing the brand to new regions. Um, you know, having enough resources to, to do that efficiently where it makes sense while also balancing sort of the opportunities that come across. Um, one thing we're really excited about getting to profitability this year is we get to be a little bit more strategic about how we expand when you're just kind of out there to grow at all costs. Um, you can run into situations where one region's getting more attention than the other and, and it's hard to balance. Whereas when you're profitable and you could be, you approach it from that standpoint, as opportunities come your way, you can be a little bit more discerning and say, okay, does this, does this make sense for the brand right now actually, or not? Um, and so that's what, what we're really excited about. I think that's been a challenge to get to this point probably is a, a place where we're profitable and can make those strategic decisions. And congrats on, you know, um, on being on the verge of a uh, profitability. That's great. That's really, really great. Appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Yeah. It's really challenging to do. Um, how about, how about you, um, you, Emily, what has been some of like the biggest challenges when it comes to, um, the production side and also the, the distribution side? I know that Shishay, the brand, you just got into Target, so that's an incredible on the distribution side, but what's been some of the challenges as well? Well, finding the right capital and the right partner behind the capital has been hands down the biggest challenge. Um, and then just, uh, like the vision for Sachet has been a challenge, right? Like people under, they're excited about the non-op space. They see it happening, but it's still very early, right? So I feel like I have to convince a lot of, a lot of people about the category itself. And um, I know that it, it continues to grow in the very early stages, um, but the way that people are drinking is changing. And I don't think everyone's caught up to, to that yet. So I would say those two things, right? Like the space we're in and um, access to the right kind of capital. Oh, that, yeah, that, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense, obviously, especially in like this environment too, um, where you kind of get hit on both sides, the equity and the debt side too, when it comes yeah. to finding actual candle, uh, capital for growth. Um, Sally, how about you when it comes to, um, as you're, at, 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 when it comes to the ad advising um, the brands that are growing, what has been some of like the pain points when it comes to upping on the production side or the or the distribution side. That that is a very hot question. Um, you know, I I would say that now, um, you know, we're seeing. I think the sales of of a lot of these beverage companies are tapering off a bit, um, and so, uh, you know, I think yeah, I mentioned earlier like focus. And making sure that um, you kind of align on what's working and test things very quickly, um, including on like, you know, what you mentioned, like the production side and just like, um, you know, sussing out different vendors, sussing out different investors, sussing out like different sales opportunities for yourself, because right now, you know, you don't want to um, focus yourself in the wrong direction. Um, because there are a lot of macro challenges. Um, I don't have a lot to say specifically on like production distribution um, for specifics, but I would say that's my general advice. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, Elliot, how about yourself when it comes to ramping up production uh, for ritual? What has been some of like the challenges in, in doing so? 
Um, in my mind, non-alcoholic spirits make sense. And for many of the people listening, it makes sense. But for most of the country and the world, it's, it's still education. And that could be on the production side or the sales side. So on the production side, a lot of times we approach uh, co-packers and they don't understand what it is. It's built completely differently. It's not uh, it's not an alcohol that was distilled with the alcohol then taken out. It's it's built to be just like its alcoholic counterpart, but never once was an alcohol. Um, on the sales side, education is is even harder and that's our continued uphill battle. Uh, that's the advantage of coming into a new category is, wow, you're one of the first in a new category. The toughest thing is letting everyone else in the country know about it. So, um, you know, I should you know, also mention Sachet, early partner, great, great customer from the beginning, but you don't have Emily's in every store who are so passionate and knowledgeable of what your product is and why drink it. Um, if you could do that everywhere, then then your velocity in every store is going to be amazing. So it's it's about finding the right retail channels that understand will merchandise your product correctly to get the end consumer over the education piece. So that's a great that's a great point um, regarding your category um, uh, for non for non non alcoholic that 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 customer education awareness of uh, for and the reason the reason why it exists and of course why it's such a growing market too. Um, and, and convincing others that it, it that exists and also that it's delicious. Um, Emily, Trey, Sally, Elliot, thank you all so much for your time. This has been so much fun. Thank you everyone that has stayed. Um, this has been great. We'll also have this on on the replay. Uh, thank you to, to Manufactured who is producing this um, this webinar um, slash podcast. This will also be um, repurposed on our podcast as well. Um, and so um, and so, th thank you all for. Uh, attending thank you for our panelists thanks mike thanks, thanks mike and great to meet you everybody cheers yes. care everyone bye, bye.